behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to the July 2019 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a very interesting conversation on the effect of pulmonary rehab in COPD. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Christian Osadnik as our guest. So my name is Christian Osadnik, and I'm a physiotherapist and postdoctoral researcher from Melbourne in Australia, um, based in the Department of Physiotherapy at Monash University, and also in Monash Lung and Sleep at Monash Health in Melbourne, Australia. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Osadnik. And today we're discussing Christian's recent publication in CHEST entitled, The Effect of Pulmonary Rehab on Symptoms of Anxiety and Depression in Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So Christian, um, your systematic review uh, dealt with anxiety and depression and whether or not um, pulmonary rehab was effective in those patients with COPD. Maybe you could give us a brief overview on why you performed uh, the systematic review and meta-analysis. Sure. As a physiotherapist, a clinician that's been working in the area of respiratory medicine and rehabilitation, we already know that there's a lot of interest in pulmonary rehab and its effects for people that have got a range of different chronic lung diseases. Uh, my particular interest area is in people with COPD. And what is interesting is that we already know there's a lot of good evidence that has shown quite convincing benefits that for people with COPD who do pulmonary rehab that on average, compared to people who don't do pulmonary rehab, there's a lot of data that suggests that people tend to get better in terms of their exercise tolerance and their quality of life by doing this rehab program. And the best known previous review of its kind was really a Cochrane review that had um, 65 randomised control trials by McCarthy and colleagues. And what was interesting about that review is that it really sets a landscape where it's quite convincing in its numbers of patients that have been included in the review. And one of the conclusions from it really was to say that we probably need to stop questioning whether pulmonary rehab helps our patients. And we have to probably move on now to be questioning different aspects of how can we improve its effectiveness. And I've got an interest in how we improve um, outcomes related to mental health in these patients. And what's an interesting point of difference is that even though that large review had said quite convincing benefits in these different outcomes, the outcome from it is that we don't want people to continue to question whether pulmonary rehab works and continue doing studies of pulmonary rehab versus no pulmonary rehab. However, we don't have the same amount of data related to symptoms of anxiety and depression. And so there was a real risk, I guess, that if we just assume that this treatment works, but we haven't specifically focused on the outcomes of symptoms of anxiety and depression, that we may not quite have that answer um, clarified. And so we already understand in chronic lung diseases that anxiety and depression are actually quite prevalent comorbidities. And having these issues does associate with impairments of your physical function or your risk of exacerbations or hospitalizations, et cetera. And so we wanted to make sure that we've got the same amount of high quality evidence that exists for the outcomes of symptoms of anxiety and depression that we have for other outcomes. And so we decided therefore that 
there actually was quite a need to specifically focus on these outcomes and check whether or not we can give the same degree of confidence to our patients, to our referrers and healthcare um, administrators to prove the worth for this treatment. Yeah, that's an excellent overview. So how did you perform your study and how does it differ from prior studies on the same topic? Yeah, interesting. So we conducted, this was a systematic review with a meta-analysis and um, we conducted according to what are the um, PRISMA guidelines, which are the recommendations for how to conduct um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And the one thing that we did particularly different was our focus for this review really was we wanted to make sure it was methodologically robust and that the findings could be translated easily into clinical practice. And so the approach we took, which was a bit different to other reviews in this field that have looked at symptoms of anxiety and depression, is that prior reviews, one of the challenges in implementing it is that even though we recommend pulmonary rehab for these outcomes in international guidelines, if you look at the kinds of interventions that have been included in the reviews that have concentrated on those symptoms, um, the array of different treatments would not meet what we have now considered to be the modern day quite sophisticated definition of pulmonary rehab. So prior systematic reviews actually included treatments that you would say are perhaps a psychological therapy or it may just be exercise alone or education or self-management. And pulmonary rehab has evolved in the modern day research and clinical space such that many of those interventions in isolation wouldn't meet what we now call a definition for pulmonary rehab. So we decided that there has to be a review that is targeted specifically for interventions that would meet current definitions. And we wanted to also make sure that we controlled for some of the other limitations. And what I mean by that, for example, is some prior studies that had looked at these interventions compared the treatment to perhaps an active um, alternative group or a passive alternative comparator intervention. So that may be a little bit challenging when you try to pull these studies together because it's not quite comparing apples with apples if you have got one treatment compared to doing nothing and another treatment compared to doing something because the degree of difference between them may differ as well. And so we decided we would do this systematic review of randomised controlled trials that compared pulmonary rehab, definitions that we thought were consistent or interventions that were consistent with current definitions. And we define that consistent with prior, the Cochrane Review by McCarthy of interventions that would be at least four weeks with or without education and or psychological support. But those treatments had to be compared to a no treatment usual care group. And so that was really no intervention that could otherwise be seen as plausibly improving anxiety or depressive symptoms. So we tried to be very careful to control in terms of the nature of interventions we were including. And we also wanted to explore a couple of other specific questions. So we did a subgroup analysis where we compared whether or not the effectiveness of pulmonary rehab was different, whether the program was what we called a short program or up to eight weeks long, or whether it was a long program that was longer than eight weeks. And the reason for this is that there's actually a lot of variability across the world in how we deliver pulmonary rehab. And one of the factors that is different 
is the duration of how long these programs run. So it's a bit of a topical issue to work out, do we need longer programs or can shorter programs suffice? And so we had that as an embedded subgroup analysis to this systematic review. And we then conducted the systematic review and meta-analysis according to standardised guidelines, um, and we did a comprehensive search of the literature, and we pulled together the studies that had included the data related to the outcomes of our interest, symptoms of anxiety and depression, and we then pulled those data together and represented the overall effects um, as an overall likely estimate for the average patient that we see in pulmonary rehab with COPD to try and understand whether or not um, this treatment does appear to work. And what were your findings? So we found that of the studies we had looked through, we included 11 that were representative of 734 participants. And the average rating of those studies, we used um, a measure of a risk of bias or quality rating scale at the Pedro scale, which was a 4 out of 10, which is sort of moderate quality um, studies that we included. And of those 11 studies, we compared, when we looked at the effect of rehab compared to no rehab, what we showed was that pulmonary rehab did confer what we would call a moderate degree of benefit for people with symptoms of anxiety, so an effect size of a half. And we also found for symptoms of depression that that was a little bit larger effect, so what we call a large effect or a um, effect size of 0.7. And one thing that we wanted to do was numbers on their own don't necessarily always convey accurately to clinicians what that benefit means to translate it into practice. So we decided that we would also convert those scores into one of the most common scales used to evaluate anxiety and depression. That's the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, or the HADS. And one of the benefits of the HADS is that it's a well-known instrument and it has what's called an established minimally important difference threshold. So if you have a change on the HADS that is a greater improvement than 1.3 in the anxiety element, then you would be deemed to be demonstrating a significant benefit that's clinically meaningful. And so our data conferred a difference of 1.9, which is greater than the MID of 1.3 for anxiety. So that was greater than what we would expect um, and something that we would expect to be a realistic benefit. And for symptoms of depression, the minimally important difference is 1.5, and our data showed that the magnitude of benefit from the rehab was actually 2.9. So in other words, a large benefit that would be, in theory, noticeable as a clinically relevant benefit. And that's important for us to be able to then reassure clinicians that, yes, these this intervention appears to be benefiting patients for these two outcomes. And we also rated the evidence in terms of how certain can we be that it would actually um, be true and relatable to our patients. And we said it was a moderate degree of certainty that we can have in this evidence. There is some degree because the quality of the studies was not high for all of them. We downgraded at one level. Um, and interestingly, even though we wanted to compare the data between the shorter or the longer programs, we actually showed that there was no difference, no statistically significant difference in the overall effect of treatment between the shorter and longer programs. So what we think really is that this can, gives us that degree of confidence and it shows that pulmonary rehab does confer 
benefits upon anxiety and depressive symptoms that are both statistically and clinically relevant and significant. And we really think that if you go back to the finding from the original McCarthy review that really puts this position out there that there is no true indication to conduct more studies that question pulmonary rehab compared to not doing pulmonary rehab, our data at least is fairly consistent with that, that even though we only have 11 studies compared to the 65 in that large review, that the benefit appears to be equally positive for these outcomes and so it paints a good picture of how confident we should be that this treatment is helping our patients. Well, those are rather impressive uh, findings. There are no perfect systematic reviews or meta-analyses, so what would you identify as the limitations in yours? True, I absolutely agree with you. And I feel that one of the big um, considerations when clinicians in particular or um, healthcare providers or policymakers interpret these findings is that because we took a focus that was quite specific to get the right kinds of studies with the right kinds of comparators um, to be very relatable to clinical pulmonary rehab, we've got a yield that is now 11 studies, which, as I mentioned before, compared to that 65 studies review, um, it seems quite small. And so some may actually be a bit sceptical that that may not represent a large body of work. However, we obviously wanted this to be quite specific and quite methodologically robust so that really it could stand up to um, scrutiny so that if it's going to be um, looked at in future guidelines and recommendations, we want it to be very clearly saying that this does represent and gives quite direct evidence that this treatment is likely to help these patients for these outcomes. Um, one thing that we were also clear about is that we made the distinction, and I've used the terms carefully around anxiety and depressive symptoms. We haven't said that pulmonary rehab cures anxiety or depression. And I think it's quite important that it's also well understood that we're talking about how much it may improve the symptoms of these comorbidities. But this is not to say that pulmonary rehab is the only and the curative treatment for people that have these issues. And so, for example, people that have got anxiety or depressive symptoms are likely to need to be having a comprehensive management plan that would include potentially pharmacological interventions or psychological therapies. And so this shows that for those who can access this form of treatment, it may be something that can be beneficial for them, but it's not necessarily going to be a um, finding that can be um, implemented to all our patients. And what we know is that we did this review and many reviews of its kind include patients who are recruited into randomised controlled trials. And so that degree of specificity of who gets involved in clinical trials may not represent the real patient world that's out there. And what we know is that we're dealing a lot more now in clinical practice with patients that have got a range of different comorbidities, multimorbidity, and several studies when you look at inclusion criteria don't necessarily allow for that exact kind of patient to be included. So we always need to be wary as well that does the patient in front of us represent the data and the literature that we've shown to be reviewed to um, confer the benefit? And I think that we always need to be, as, as clinicians, to be wary of how we implement evidence into practice. And a lot of people in their local areas 
typically evaluate these kinds of symptoms in their pulmonary rehab practice. And so, for example, we've looked at randomised controlled trials, but if you have a centre that has been doing an audit on your pulmonary rehab database, then it's possible that the data at your centre may also apply much more accurate information to the patients in your particular region and maybe there's something specific about the makeup of someone's program that might give rise to potentially different um, implications in terms of their clinical practice. So it's important that the way we've structured the question, which is in line with what would be recommended practice for these reviews, that that may not um, align with the local patients in front of us um, in clinical practice. Yeah, that's a very uh, important insight. Um, I'm going to do a little deeper dive just to, um, to, to get a bit more information about um, the systematic review and meta-analysis and uh, raise some critiques that some readers may have. Um, so you decided to include only English um, uh, papers, um, and some may ask why not include non-English um, uh, studies uh, about this topic? Yeah, that's a good question, and something that... Um, for example, in many different types of reviews, certainly in Cochrane reviews, there will be uh, resources available to do that. And certainly that was one of the limiting um, barriers to our treatment that we, sorry, when we conducted the review that we didn't have access um, of people with different um, knowledge in different languages. We, interestingly, if we looked back to, for example, the McCarthy-Cochrane review, that one, so Cochrane usually don't impose language restrictions and um, I don't recall the number, but I don't believe there were a lot of studies that had contributed data that were of a non-English um, publication language. Um, we, that, it really relates also back to that point I just mentioned before that in someone's particular location or context, there may be examples where the evidence presented in the reviews may not represent that patient group in front of you. And so I feel that we had to... Um, take some limitations in order to um, achieve the review being conducted. And I feel that's obviously one of the limitations is that we didn't represent that. I don't have a particular thought that there were many studies excluded on the basis of language. However, it's something always that um, maybe is also an inherent bias and sometimes the literature that you can find out there that studies that may be well-conducted or may have good implications for clinical practice may not always be making it out there into um, the published literature and therefore may be a limitation to represent um, certainly people from different um, regions and socioeconomic um, backgrounds as well. Oh, thank you for that clarification. And you mentioned the issue of bias and in, the, in your paper you mentioned that you could not assess publication bias in your study. Um, and you gave a pretty good reason for why not. And I was hoping you'd uh, just let our audience uh, know the reasons for that and what challenges you had to deal with. Yes, yeah, certainly that was something that we, um, I'll admit, we debated a lot. Um, so we conducted the review, as I mentioned, according to um, recommendations, PRISMA reporting guidelines. And one of the things that we would typically do in reviews is evaluate whether or not there was publication bias. So whether there was this finding that perhaps only the studies that are showing positive results are being published and maybe there are studies that were negative that maybe are not out there. And so within different softwares, you can easily perform these analyses where you can generate what's called a funnel plot. 
and actually then um, identify visually whether or not um, there appear to be studies of different um, findings that are represented, overrepresented or underrepresented. And we looked through the literature because we first generated these and we then weren't quite convinced it was the right approach. And the basic recommendation for funnel plots is that you conduct them when you've got at least 10 studies, which was appropriate for us. However, we opted not to then do a formal analysis via this technique because what we realised is that the data we were representing, we had analysed as effect sizes or standardised mean differences because not every study that we had included used the same instrument. So I mentioned, for example, the HADS instrument is one of the most common, but there are other measures of anxiety or depression that could be a Hamilton um, anxiety index or a Beck depression index. And different tools have different scoring regimes and some have bigger numbers representing benefits or lower numbers representing um, benefits or harms. And so when we combine using this standardised mean difference um, technique or effect sizes, what happens is that when you then conduct a funnel plot, it runs the risk that you may actually distort the interpretation of it and there's the risk that you might actually then conclude that there is bias or conclude that there's no bias, whereas actually because you've used these effect sizes, they don't quite give the true um, understanding and interpretation of that technique. So we, on looking certainly at those figures, did not see evidence of publication bias. However, when we then really scrutinised the theory behind using that approach for this, this type of data, we agreed and consistent with that literature that no, it probably was um, more accurate to just say that it was not necessarily the most appropriate technique, so therefore we didn't do that official um, analysis. That's a great response. So the two really great qualities of your meta-analysis systematic review is that you assessed the study quality and then rated the level of evidence with grade. Um, and I was hoping you'd just uh, stress to our chest audience why uh, using grade is so important um, uh, when doing uh, meta-analyses. Yeah, sure. So for those, um, some, some people are familiar with the grade recommendations. Some um, systematic reviews aren't necessarily conducted with that in mind. And the grade recommendations... So we can do a systematic review that shows a statistically significant benefit or not, and that's that's on superficial surfaces. That's good to know, and that's you know useful for some people. But we also want to then really understand not just whether there is a statistically significant effect size that we can prove, but whether or not we should actually believe the evidence. So in other words, the numbers that we yield from a meta-analysis are the numbers. And that's actually, no one can dispute that when you sum up the data that's available that that is the overall effect estimate. What the grade recommendations do is take the evidence and then say, okay, this is the effect estimate that we have resulted from that meta-analysis, but should we now think about were there limitations in the study design or were the studies that we included inconsistent in terms of the direction of benefit? Were some studies positive and some studies negative? Some papers are included, but they may be indirect in their nature. So what I mean by that is that they may, instead of addressing the effect of treatment one on this particular patient group, it might be 
a sub-analysis of another study that we can infer some benefit on the population that we're interested in. So there, it's a criteria that can be used um, to highlight whether or not this information really applies to our patients. And the two other criteria is whether the results are imprecise, which means if we have an effect estimate that shows we can expect to see a benefit of two points on a particular scale, if the confidence intervals are very wide, then really we're not very clear. It could range from a large benefit to a very low benefit or no benefit. And the fifth criteria for grade is whether there's evidence of publication bias. And so it's important that having knowledge of and a magnitude of effect is useful, but these five criteria, so limitations of the study design or risks of bias, inconsistency, indirectness, imprecision and publication bias, it may be that you show statistically significant magnitudes of benefit, but if it has low, or sorry, if it has high degrees of limitations, which means that we potentially should be wary of applying that evidence to our patients, then that's quite a different situation. And so we rated the certainty of evidence according to grade as moderate because really we only found evidence that based on some of the limitations of study designs of the quality of those studies, um, that was the main factor that we downgraded um, for this evidence. Great. And then moving from methodology to uh, clinically relevant uh, issues. Um, so you mentioned that the, uh, in your paper, you mentioned that the has decreased uh, by negative 2.9 in anxiety and negative 1.9 for depression. What does that mean to a clinician who is not familiar with the, the HAD scoring system? Yeah. And that's a good point. I made a point of saying that the HADS is one of the well-known ones. It's certainly not the only one, and some people still will not have that degree of familiarity with it. I guess what it does say is that um, as opposed to, you know, using an effect size estimate, which is what we used as our main um, metric in the analysis, that for anxiety, symptoms of anxiety, we would expect that um, you would observe a moderate decrease in the symptoms of anxiety. And, of course, that's not exactly a very tangible concept or number. But, um, in other words, people tend to experience a difference that they should find perceptible that would feel of a decent magnitude of improvement for anxiety. And I guess for the symptoms of depression, that 2.9 scale... Uh, sorry, 2.9 unit um, improvement for the HADS depression item, which is in excess of what is that 1.5 minimally important difference for depression, that shows that patients on average, which would be represented by the kinds of patients included in these randomised controlled trials, that they should be feeling that by doing pulmonary rehab that they would expect on average to see an effect that they could perceive as feeling large. That, In other words, they started with symptoms of depression and at the end of it they felt that there was a considerable decrease in those symptoms of depression. And so if taken at its most simple um, measure is not necessarily thinking of this particular scale or these particular numbers, that people with these symptoms do notice on average according to this data improvements that should be perceptible and um, noted as being considerable improvements. So that's a degree of confidence, and I feel that as one of the big take-home messages that that is a reassuring tick in the box that we can add these symptoms to the list of expected benefits on top of the convincing evidence that already exists for some of these other outcomes. 
benefits, the tangible benefits. I like it. And then one last question for clarification. You had mentioned that you used a, an up-to-date definition of pulmonary rehab. The question is always going to be raised about what was in the control arm. What was your sense of what was usual care um, as a control arm? Yeah, so that was that was why um, really one of the reasons why we wanted to make sure we did this particular review was to focus on quite tight definitions around our um, particular studies that we had included. So that was really the genesis for this review. So by definition, we had the criteria set that the control arms of these included studies couldn't be an intervention that we felt could plausibly improve symptoms of anxiety and depression so that it could not potentially confound um, the magnitude of benefit of pulmonary rehab. Now, the kinds of comparators that were reported, so you have descriptors according to the way that these particular publications had reported their control arms that was either usual care or um, waitlist-controlled um, intervention, which means that someone may have been enrolled to do pulmonary rehab, but they would start after the other group had done their pulmonary rehab. So they had um, data collected while they were waiting, and so that served as their no-treatment control group. Um, we scrutinised and made sure that none of those studies appeared to give clear indications that they gave specific instructions to do something like we didn't allow them to have had documented evidence of being encouraged to take up an independent active um, exercise program. So what is difficult to articulate is that in different parts of the world, what would constitute usual care is very variable. And I think one of the things that is reassuring is that people tend to know and typically, but not always, tend to report if somebody has decided to enrol in a particular um, new gym program or they've gone to seek a particular course of um, rehabilitation. And I think in some regards we're a bit blessed in rehabilitation because it's not something that people do necessarily very willingly. It's something usually that you have to um, uh, not, not coerce but sometimes encourage your patients to adopt. So it's not a typical thing that people might take, whereas perhaps some people might start taking a new medication on their own without um, being um, particularly um, encouraged or prescribed to do that. So if we have that slight degree of confidence that usual care may vary in different parts of the world, but typically people don't do a lot of rehabilitation. We know in COPD that people tend to be less active and have poorer exercise tolerance compared to people who don't have COPD. So even though we couldn't control for different degrees of activity. And what I mean by that is that some people by nature are more active than other people. And therefore you may hypothesize that those who are more active might potentially do better or do less um, or have less benefit when they come to do their course of pulmonary rehab. We couldn't control for those factors, but at least we could say we have got a list of studies that have actually got what we would call a comparison of apples to apples, that they've got a treatment that was consistent with pulmonary rehab and a no-treatment group that would be acceptable as um, a um, homogenous um, group of interventions that we feel um, can be safely classified as a non-active treatment. Outstanding. So how does your systematic review advance our understanding and how do you think it's going to influence either clinical research or clinical practice? 
Yeah, that, that's a really important issue. So I think one of the biggest take-home messages from this is that it should hopefully give clinicians or healthcare providers or individuals with COPD a degree of confidence that this data gives a fairly good degree of reassurance that when people present to their either referrals, their physicians or their allied health professionals and have documented um, comorbidities related to anxiety and depressive symptoms, that this gives a degree of reassurance that pulmonary rehab is a likely intervention that may benefit these symptoms on the average patient. And again, I stress that some people don't meet the criteria of the typical randomised controlled trial enrolled patients. Um, the other thing that's really important, though, is that it's quite direct evidence. I mentioned about the grade criteria earlier on. And if you've got direct evidence, which is this particular question was addressed in these particular patients looking at this particular intervention comparator as well, that that is a particular element with the grade criteria that gives us that degree of um, trustworthiness of the data. So that's something that is a really reassuring point um, in our understanding. And what I actually do feel is that we have now got the ability to, I feel, take a step forward in our clinical practice and research similar to the position about pulmonary rehab for the outcomes of exercise tolerance or quality of life, that this is only, as I mentioned, 11 studies, but it's 11 very specific studies related to these outcomes and this intervention that I would hope helps us to also move forward from questioning whether or not this treatment works. And I feel that if we can move forward from questioning whether this treatment works for these outcomes, then we can move on to more um, potentially interesting questions or more challenging questions around how do we better optimise the treatment to get the most benefit for the patients in front of us? And so in a lot of people's perceptions, not everyone, but pulmonary rehab is an attractive therapy. It's not a pharmacological therapy. Some people, that will be appealing. It is relatively low cost compared to other treatments for anxiety or depressive symptoms as well. And so it's, there's a lot of interest in this space, but at the same token, some people don't want to or don't feel they should do pulmonary rehab. So, for example, some people might be deterred from um, commencing this treatment because maybe they feel because they have got symptoms of anxiety or depression that that is a barrier that may not give them the best benefit from doing the treatment. And I think one of the positive findings from this review to impact on practice is that this data really refutes that position. And Yes, there will be individuals that will have certain circumstances that may make it a bit difficult to apply this evidence to their specific circumstance, but on average what we're showing is that actually, yes, these symptoms are something we have always thought would be benefited from doing this rehab, but now we've got data to back it up. And also reassuringly is that whether or not a particular program can be offered that is of a certain length, so this issue around shorter or longer program durations, that the fact that we showed no difference there may, may actually be a positive thing for patients, or sorry, for healthcare providers, that if they don't have the means and the facilities and resources to offer lengthy programs, but they can offer shorter programs, then that's potentially a good way of reassuring them that it's not a case of you would then not refer your patient to your shorter program because you're concerned it's not long enough to benefit. We're showing here that these shorter programs, which is conventional in a lot of parts of the world, this sort of eight-week length, that your benefits are likely to be as good if you do programs of that length compared to doing longer programs. So 
we would hope in some regards that it, I guess, closes off some of the maybe perceived barriers to whether or not people should undertake this treatment. And there's certainly still a lot of work that can be done in terms of future sort of research and a lot of further implications to better understand what is helping patients or what I feel is one of the big challenges is how do we optimise the treatment to the person in front of us to make sure that we get, I guess, the best bang for buck in terms of their um, best treatment response in the time that we've got them because looking at systematic review type group data is difficult sometimes to apply to an individual in front of us. And I think that's certainly an area of future research and interest from my point of view that there's a lot of work that we can be done in that respect. Yeah, I agree. And I definitely about the important message of getting our patients to go for pulmonary rehab. So as we discussed before, there are no perfect systematic reviews. And now that you've completed this one, in hindsight, what would you have done differently in your systematic review, or what would you advocate um, future RCTs need to include for in their data collection? Yeah, it's one of the challenges now is we're in an interesting point in the clinical research and practice landscape of if we are truly, and as we should be, implementing evidence-based practice, we of course now know that this is a treatment that's highly effective for the average patient and there are ethical issues around denying treatment or one can design trials whereby they have this sort of weightless control um, arm to their studies. But even in that regard, that still potentially delays patients from getting access to a treatment that we now know works across a few different um, important outcomes. And so future randomised control trials, really we are entering this situation where we don't want there to be a treatment and a no treatment arm because we want to make sure that everyone is gaining access to this important treatment. And that becomes a challenge for people to, I guess, design studies in a way that is fair and equitable to um, each participant that's involved. There is certainly a lot of scope and a lot of interest in not designing studies that are treatment versus no treatment, but treatment with an add-on um, element to it and treatment with no add-on arm. So in other words, pulmonary rehab now is almost becoming the control group and intervention groups are these pulmonary rehab plus additional elements. And that is, I feel, the way that we are moving, but it's also bringing with it a lot of challenges because if we know that if pulmonary rehab becomes your control arm, then we already know that it's very beneficial and our bodies in a time frame of eight weeks can only respond and adapt physiologically to exercise and multi-component interventions to a certain degree. So the problem is when you start adding things on top and comparing it to something that's already effective, you've got a potentially narrow window and a small window to demonstrate benefit. And we haven't actually got the right techniques worked out as to how we should measure benefit when we're adding something onto something that's already beneficial. Um, where this position of the research is lending us now is that we maybe don't need to be implementing particular um, randomised control trials for this particular question, but there's a lot more different study types. You asked at the start, were there different things I could do in hindsight differently? I really would have liked to have included a huge analysis of 
local pulmonary rehab databases just to look at the not randomised controlled trial data but just um, registry-type data almost to show in large numbers um, whether the benefits we're observing in these studies are actually replicating in the day-to-day -day sort of real patient context. And I think that's where I think there is still a role for there's systematic views and meta-analyses of RCTs and then there's everyday practice and evaluating and auditing um, local data. And where we are emerging now to is there's an increasing need for what we would call responder analyses, which is doing studies that don't question whether rehab works versus whether it doesn't work, but we're looking at a group of patients that hopefully are fairly well defined and we've got fairly robust measures of outcomes that are useful for us um, to look at. But then maybe we break and subgroup the data if we've got enough numbers to look at who were the patients that did respond and probably more important, who were the patients that did not respond and then working backwards and looking retrospectively at what were the factors that may have predisposed this patient to having a good response to treatment or having not a good response to treatment. And that kind of research is the kind that will inform our understanding and it leads to new hypotheses that we can then test in future studies to try and really articulate, was this the elements that may have helped this patient or did we need to maybe start doing something different for this comorbidity to manage it to then be able to give them the best chance of getting a good response from our treatment? So different research designs are certainly still indicated in this space, but perhaps we're not necessarily getting to that point of wanting to see more people do these RCTs of treatment versus no treatment. Yeah, again, well, they're really great insights. Uh, thank you, Christian. Um, Christian, I do want to be mindful of your time, um, so I want to ask you, you know, we've discussed a lot, a lot in this podcast. Is there anything that we didn't cover um, that you feel our chess community uh, should know or be aware of? Look, I feel that this is certainly an area, again, at the start when I mentioned I wanted to look at this particular question um, in light of the what some people might question maybe considering we had this big Cochrane review data and all these other outcomes would sort of maybe consider that this question was already addressed and I really did feel that this wasn't adequately addressed in the prior research that was done. So on the surface, this is a systematic review um, meta-analysis of testing an intervention and saying does it work for a different outcome and some might say, well, of course we assume that was the case, but it's important that this is really perceived quite clearly that it was taken with a particular methodological approach that was making sure it was giving very accurate information that is very translatable into clinical practice. And I feel that even though our findings show benefits and in the past we have also felt there were benefits, that this gives that most direct evidence that actually says for these particular patients with COPD who come to what we call pulmonary rehab now, that this is a particular um, a point of difference to the prior research. So I feel that in the pulmonary rehab space, this does actually add a useful and important um, new message to the scientific literature that we've up to date been referring to in guidelines and things like that. Um, I feel that there is a lot of scope for further research and I think I, if I, one of the studies I cited in the discussion of this paper, which I actually just feel is worthwhile um, mentioning, is that 
we know pulmonary rehab is a multi-component package of intervention, and I really don't feel we want to unpack pulmonary rehab. We don't want to break it down to core elements and only recommend certain bits. And so it, one of the reasons it does have such far wide-reaching benefits is that we feel that because it is quite multi-component, it's got healthcare practitioners, it's got socialisation, it's got a physiological adaptation from the um, hopefully high-intensity exercise training. There's a range of things that do benefit these individuals. And an element that was thought of really as one of the um, factors that might help this element for this review of symptoms of anxiety and depression is what is there something specific that we're targeting mental health in this rehabilitation intervention? Because on the surface, you look at it and you say, we're not really going out there trying to improve mental health, but clearly we're now showing that there is evidence to say that it does affect that. And we haven't unteased the exact mechanism. We feel that when you get better ability to exercise, you can move more, you get potentially less breathless, you maybe then implement that into your daily life and that starts to help you have a degree of confidence and you can then start moving and doing things and feeling better. So there's certainly a plausible um, rationale. One of the studies that has been more recently looked at was when I mentioned we sometimes now look at adding on elements. There was an important study done in Australia by Mari Williams looking at cognitive behavioural therapy and what happens if we add that to pulmonary rehab because that is really something that we know could be very useful as a psychological therapy for people with symptoms of anxiety and depression. And so the interesting part of that study was that was a randomised controlled trial looking at that CBT as an add-on to pulmonary rehab and to almost everyone's surprise it showed no additional benefit on the outcomes of interest. And where I think this helps advance our understanding is that it, one of the hypotheses that has emerged from that and from the lead author there is that pulmonary rehab on its own probably does have a degree of um, salient CBT or cognitive behavioural therapies inherent within it. So because of the fact that you can have formal or informal degrees of counselling or social support from the people that are there, that they have got the exercise benefits, the confidence boost, there's a lot of support. They've got potentially eight weeks of two sessions a week where they've got um, their peers and healthcare professionals around them to support them, that it does give us quite a positive um, message. And we hopefully can then understand that these patients that present with symptoms of anxiety and depression, that this does make a lot of sense. And there is a good plausible reason for why we should be doing as best as we can to recommend it as a treatment and to do our best to um, ensure people can have access to this treatment. And that's, unfortunately, we mentioned about time. That's another day's worth of discussion around barriers to accessing this treatment. But certainly, um, we've got good rationale and good thinking that this is a treatment that can address mental health outcomes as well as the physiological exercise outcomes. And I feel that that's one of the um, important take-home messages there that there's a plausible rationale and a plausible reason for why we're seeing these benefits that we now observe. Great. Uh, that was a great podcast. Um, I just want to say a big thank you to Dr. Osadnik for a really great conversation and really great insights. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. Um, I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the Chess Podcast. Thank you very much, Dominic. And I also just want to pay my acknowledgement um, to my co-authors, of course, that contributed a lot to this review. But 
um, couldn't join me on this podcast, but um, certainly this represented a, um, a large body of work conducted in a team. A large body of work and a lot of impressive work, so congratulations to your whole team. Thank you.